Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. As we mentioned earlier, this week held both National Indigenous Peoples Day and World Refugee Day. And I'm going to double up a little bit on some of the things that Scott already mentioned, because both of these days are significant to us at Commons. We continue to work with refugees from around the world. And we posted a small update on the Alcador family, whom we brought to Canada almost four years ago. And they are doing incredibly well in the city and applying for their Canadian citizenship, which is really exciting. We also added two additional families that arrived this past year, and we continue to have amazing, amazing, amazing volunteers who care and work to settle these families well. So again, you can read more about their own stories on our Facebook and our Instagram posts from the week. For real, you guys do not miss reading those, some more details about uh, their lives. And again, thank you so much for being a community who cares and who supports generously. But we also this week marked National Indigenous Peoples Day. And while we acknowledge our presence here on the traditional territory of the Blackfoot peoples, we also want to ensure that we are listening to and being deeply shaped by Indigenous voices who have so much to teach us. So thankfully in Calgary, we are so blessed with many opportunities to learn and to, to grow. But today I want to point out a few resources available in our lending library, which is at the back of the room here on the connection table uh, here at Commons and at both parishes. So the three of them are uh, Rescuing the Gospel from the Cowboys by Richard Twist, which by the way, just like take in the image of that cover art, it's like, icons, it's really beautiful and kind of challenging. And Shalom and the Community of Creation and Indigenous Vision by Randy Woodley and Glory Happening by Caitlin Curtis. And these are all excellent books by Indigenous authors that will add to your own faith journey. We have multiple copies, of course, on our bookshelf, but if you wanna support the authors yourself, by all means, go ahead and buy a copy and read them. Now this week was also, is also, a critical week in our denomination. A vote will be taken to determine whether the ECC, the Evangelical Covenant Church, which Commons calls its denominational home, if they will begin removing LGBTQ affirming churches from the denomination. So they're at a really interesting crossroads. And Commons is sending your very own Scott Wall, along with Joel Braun, who's also in the room today, down to Omaha this week to represent us at the meeting and to vote on our behalf and to make sure that we do all that we can to preserve a place for inclusive churches like Commons in the ECC. So please, pray with us this week. Be present to the pain and the fear and also the hope that exists in this story in this point in time. And we will have updates for you as soon as we can in the week. I feel like, take a breath. Those are lots of details and they were important. But last week we opened our series on change. And it's important to notice that our relationship with change is full of contradiction. 
We love change, we hate change, we resist change. Maybe some of us seek change, we process change, we ignore it. We have levels and levels of change in our lives. So we started last week asking the question, what grounds you in change? And the text for this series is Ezra and Nehemiah, two books in most Bibles, but one in biblical studies. And Ezra and Nehemiah presents a people in the thick of change. God's people are torn from their home in Judah and forced to live as subjects under the Babylonian Empire and then the Persian Empire. And eventually Persia's King Cyrus allows the people to go home. And while his motivations are not at all pure, the exiles start to flow back to Palestine. And when they get there, things are a mess. So they start to rebuild. And they do the work to rebuild the altar. They do the work to rebuild the temple. They do the work to rebuild their identity. Only that part turns out to be much harder. And we can all relate to this, can't we? The start and the stop nature of change, the inspiration that strikes and then kind of fizzles, the plans that we begin that maybe sometimes just slowly fall apart. It's not like you set out to make a big change and then it's just like easy peasy, one, two, three, you're done, right? Change is rarely as simple as that. And one of my favorite episodes from the opening chapters of Ezra is where the people lay the foundation of the temple. Now you'd think, after years of delay, they would be 100% thrilled to get this far. And many of them are that thrilled. They clang cymbals and they blow trumpets and they sing. Only alongside the songs about the goodness of Yahweh, some of the elders, they start to actually just sob. And it's not just like sniffles or a lone tear, they weep. They weep so loud that it said one could not distinguish the sounds of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping. The elders, they mourn because they remember the beauty of their former temple. And change like this is noisy. I mean, here, yes, literally, it is noisy, but the effect of change in our lives is actually pretty noisy, too. Every change involves a loss, and every loss is felt as a grief. Even when the change is good, the truth that a change is loss is grief has grounded me in times of change and paying attention to the loss in both good change and challenging change can also ground you too. Last week we spoke about other actions that ground us in change, like writing down the names of people who are truly in your corner and noticing moments of genuine wonder and finding your own voice to speak up. Now maybe we're feeling a little more secure, a little more grounded. So the next question that we approach is this, what guides you in change? So guidance is where we're going today, and we are going back to the Ezra memoir to look for some help. And I'd like to invite you again this week to notice just one place in your life where things are changing a lot for you right now, and name that for yourself in this quiet moment, and we'll hold that with you as we pray. So please join me.
loving God, you hold the world and everything in it. And as we sit here in this peaceful place, this peaceful corner of the world, we are aware that the universe swirls with so much chaos and loss. And somehow we can experience your heart for us in both the calm and the terror. Jesus, you lived as we do. You are our teacher, our friend, our healer. So won't you speak your word of life to us in all the change that we name, the change that we fear, the change that we love, the change that we find life-giving. And Holy Spirit, will you breathe your comfort and your grace. We are here with you now, and for this we give thanks. Amen. So, simple question. Does everybody know what a memoir is? You likely do, but I'll give you a little refresher. A memoir is a record of events written by a person having intimate knowledge of the events based on personal observations. It's a story that you tell yourself or others about what happened to you. And a few weeks ago, my husband Jonathan and I were talking about memoirs you know, like as you do, just another dinner conversation. And I was telling Jonathan how much I love memoirs. Like, I really love a good memoir. I love to access a person's thoughts in memoirs. I love the way that people process their own stories. I love how the experience of another person can give me the words that I need for myself. And then I asked Jonathan, finally, after doing quite a bit of talking, hey, do you like memoirs? And he said maybe he's only read like one or two. And he's a reader. I mean, I didn't divorce him on the spot, but I can't promise that I was not thinking about it. Of course, I kid, I wouldn't. But Jonathan did redeem himself when he quoted not a memoir, but a movie to let me know that, yes, he knew exactly what I was talking about. It's a scene from Midnight in Paris, and Ernest Hemingway is explaining that, yes, his book is a good book. And it is good because it's honest. And that's exactly what I was on about with my memoir monologue. I love honest stories. Give them to me with all of their grit and their mess. Honest memoirs can guide you through times of really big change. As you witness someone else's journey, it helps you to think more deeply about your own. And that's actually where Ezra comes in. The character of Ezra doesn't actually show up until chapter four or chapter seven. In fact, chapters seven to 10 are called the Ezra memoir in biblical studies. Now, when you begin a memoir, you wonder, okay, who is this person? And lucky for us, the text tells us who Ezra is, only it's a little bit like over the top with the description, like it almost seems dishonest. But the truth is that the text is working really hard to establish Ezra's legitimacy. We're told that Ezra is from the priestly line of Aaron, so he's a very big deal to these people. And we're told that Ezra is part of a later wave of returnees who returned to Jerusalem with the backing of King Artaxerxes. And we're told that Ezra is renowned, renowned for his devotion to the law of Yahweh. And Ezra's love for this law is so hyped 
There's even a legend which says that Ezra dictated from memory 94 holy books that had been lost in exile. So basically, Ezra is like the Samuel Tarley of the law, and FYI, my husband would be so proud of me for that Game of Thrones reference. Anyone else? Hardly. Well, gold hand fist bump for the few of you in the room. But what does the law actually mean here? It's not like Ezra is like traveling back to Jerusalem with this like leather bound Bible tucked up under his arm. No such thing even exists. Well, the Aramaic word for law in the text can mean a number of things. Biblical scholar Catherine Southwood says that it could be the Persian law, it could be the Deuteronomic law code, it could be the Hebrew term Torah, it could be the Mosaic law that would later become the Pentateuch, it could even just be general instructions and edicts. Words on the page can be so much more than just words on the page. Whatever the law is, it's important to see that Ezra and the rules that he teaches appear on the scene like a savior. And there's a connection for us. When life is changing, or when we feel some sort of threat, we look for some rules to guide us. Like deep down we think, just tell me what to do and I will do it. And I get it. We don't like to feel out of control. We hate feeling out of sorts. We hate the vulnerability that change brings. But honestly, there are limits to laws. There are restrictions when it comes to rules, and we're going to see more of that in Ezra. But first, Ezra is set up in the text as this restorer to the Jerusalem community. His broken and scattered people have stalled out in their resettlement, and Ezra arrives to make some change. But how does our boy Ezra go about this restoration? Well, a letter from King Artaxerxes in Ezra 7 gives these permissions to Ezra. Moreover, you are to take with you the silver and gold that the king and his advisors have freely given to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. With this money, be sure to buy bulls, rams, and male lambs, together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, and sacrifice them on the altar of the temple of your God in Jerusalem. Now. It's the specifics in these verses that offer guidance to this restoration. God's people are in the thick of change. They are no longer exiles, but they are not yet flourishing in their homeland. And it's these holy objects, these tactile things, bulls and offerings and drinks that offer them something more. They're sent back to help them identify with who they are. Now don't go thinking that the Persian king's motives are altruistic though. Even as the province of Judah is being exploited, Ezra finds a way to spin the exploitation into something restorative for the people in his care. But how can gold and lambs and bulls and grain offerings restore people? How do everyday objects become something sacred in their story? Well, maybe it's a little bit like a susu. 
When my niece, Amory, was a little baby, she loved her soother. Now, this picture of a soother in her mouth is not real, it's from Snapchat, because three-year-olds use Snapchat. Now, there was a time when Amory went to bed with four or five soothers. Soothers were her absolute most favorite thing. She'd have one in her mouth and one in her hands and a few more just kicking around her crib. Just in case she lost one in the night, she could always grab a another. These little objects, they soothed her. And there's actually a psychology to these small things. Attachment objects help with the transition to independence. And in an article for the British Psychological Society, Dr. Christian Jarrett says that even as we get older, we see our things as extensions of ourselves. We use them to signal to ourselves and others who we want to be and where we want to belong. And Dr. Jarrett says reflecting on our things can actually help restore a fragile ego. Change will challenge your very sense of self. And holy objects, small tokens, can remind you of who you are and who you want to be. They're just simple things, right? But they can guide you through complex change. And I know that it is a bit of a paradox that holding tight to something small can actually free you in a big way, but they can. You don't have to drift through change without these little anchors. Small objects can actually do some of the work for you. So maybe it's a journal or a photo or a favorite film that speaks to you about who you are. Maybe it's a song or just a piece of jewelry or a rock from a hike that reminds you of something that you accomplished. It could be a coffee mug, a pair of running shoes, maybe a tree in your own backyard that reminds you of what you need. You're allowed to love these things. And even though there is wisdom in knowing that your stuff can never love you back, there are small things in your life that will guide you through change. The stuff of the everyday, just hiding out to show you what's actually really important to you and offering you hints about how to move forward. And as your identity is kind of reflected in these objects, you're a little more empowered to take some action. So Ezra and the new wave of returnees, they make a pit stop along the way. Before they arrive in Jerusalem, they stop at the Aava Canal in Babylon, and Ezra proclaims a fast. And the text records Ezra's words like this. There, at the Aava Canal, I proclaimed a fast, so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask God for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. So the people, they fast. They petition God. They measure out heaps and heaps of silver and gold and bronze in their offerings, and God answers their prayer. Then Ezra declares, you as well as all of these articles are consecrated to the Lord. And the Hebrew word for consecrated is kodesh, and it means holy. And the theme of holiness is even more common in the scriptures than love. When something is called holy, it is thought to be perfect, set apart, pure. And in biblical literature, there are obvious places which are holy. There's the tabernacle, there's the temple, there's Mount Zion. But here, 
the people are not in the temple. They aren't even in the holy city. They're just camping out by a canal in the land of exile. And with some relatively small actions, they flip the script on what that place now means to them. Without even getting where they want to go, without even stepping inside or outside of the border of Babylon, they see themselves for who they are. They see themselves as holy and set apart and finally heading home. Small actions can guide you to a sense of holiness too. With the land that you stand on is sacred, whether you're in a place of worship or you're just walking through a local park, whether you're pleading with God in prayer or you're just taking a deep breath on your yoga mat, whether you're doing what you love or you actually feel pretty far away from yourself, small actions, little exercises can guide you through really big change. So a few weeks ago, I walked into the room where Jonathan was playing a game on his iPad and I said, I'm sure that you will say no to this, but I was wondering if maybe you'd meditate with me. And because I married the best guy, he just said, sure. Which now that I think about it is actually how he answers most of my requests, so God bless that man. And now, most of the evening since that request, we have settled into some meditation. The two of us, we pick up our noise-canceling headphones, we live in a noisy neighborhood, and we open up our meditation app, and Jonathan jokingly counts us in, three, two, one, meditate, which always kind of makes me laugh, and then we meditate. Now, meditation is not solving all of my problems but I think that it's helping me to be a bit more present. You know, just a little more calm, uh, to pay a bit more attention to a moment. Not distracted, not obsessing, just present. And any moment we are honestly present in, where we see the truth of who we are, is holy. There is purity to presence like that. Whether it's an ancient prayer by a canal or partner meditation with noise-canceling headphones, small actions can guide you through big change. And other actions might include just taking a walk, saying no, smiling at a stranger, texting a friend, learning something new, making love, getting a therapist, sleeping in, taking a trip. Small, care-filled actions will guide you through change. But some of us, we like a few more rules, don't we? Well, once Ezra and his entourage arrive in Jerusalem, things get pretty intense when it comes to the interpretation of the law. There's this moment where the people are in the middle of a worship experience and some leaders come in and they say to Ezra, the people of Israel have not kept themselves from the neighboring people and their detestable practices. They have taken their daughters as wives. They have mingled our holy race with the people around them. Even the leaders are guilty of this unfaithfulness. Now let's be real. This is gross, right? Naming people groups as detestable, seeing women and daughters as pollution, that's gross. But what's going on here in Ezra and Nehemiah 
is that the people are concerned with the greatest sin in their history, the sin of apostasy, the sin of not solely worshiping Yahweh. So even though they are back in their homeland, they perceive a threat to their identity. And it's helpful to realize that again and again and again in human history, ethnicity as an ideological construct is used by people to hold onto parts of their identity that they perceive to be under threat. And Ezra really gets into the blame game here. Ezra tears at his tunic, he pulls out his hair, and he sits down appalled, and others join him. And then Ezra prays a very long prayer, and the people, they confess, and there's even an investigation into the matter. Eventually, every man who was found to have married foreign women is to divorce these women and send them away. And so, the women and their children, we are told, are sent away. Now, scholars tell us that it's not the law alone that forces this action, but an interpretation of the law. So yes, crowds and crowds of people, they side with Ezra. These people have undergone so much trauma, so much displacement, so much fear, that they say, yeah, it's those other people who are to blame for us not knowing who we are anymore. Let's get rid of them. But even as we're shocked by the cruelty, by the lack of compassion, by the judgment in these verses, we read this verse in chapter 10. Only Jonathan, son of Azael, and Yaziah, son of Tikvah, supported by Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, opposed this. They opposed this interpretation of the law. And the word for opposed in Hebrew is amad. It means to take a stand. Now we can't exorcise Ezra's interpretation against intermarriage from the text. The interpretation is there. Alongside the people's search for home and their desire to belong, it's a gritty memoir. But there are other voices there too. People who stand up, who are given names and who say, the way that you live out the law is not right. We oppose. This is the reality of our tradition, of any tradition. Rules work until they don't. Many of us have opposed rules against us too. Rules that kept us away from power, rules that put us against a crowd, rules that say the change that we want to see will never happen, so get used to things the way that they are. And the late Jean Vanier, both comforts and disturbs us with these words about change. In Becoming Human, Vanier writes, change in one sort or another is the essence of life. So there will always be the loneliness and insecurity that come with change. When we refuse to accept that loneliness and insecurity are part of life, when we refuse to accept that they are the price of change, we close the door on many possibilities for ourselves, our lives become lessened, we are less than fully human. Rules shape us and our identity until they don't work for you anymore. Taking a stand can be so lonely 
but it can also open you up to great possibilities, to a deeper sense of your own identity, to the fullness of our humanity. But what do you do when change takes you outside of the rules, the expectations, the way that things have always been? Well, Shulam Dean wrote a memoir called All Who Go Do Not Return. And it's his honest and at times heartbreaking story of what guided him through change. And Shulam was raised in an ultra-Orthodox Jewish sect called the Skavers. And one of the, it's one of the most insular Hasidic sects in America. And Shulam was a good Skaver. He married, he followed all the rules, he studied, he had a large family. But along the way, Shulam started to ask questions. He's really drawn to the world outside, and his drivenness pulls him. And his exploration, it starts with just something really simple, just a radio. For years, this radio, it sits in his home. And this object, he promises he will not listen to it. But then one day, he turns it on in secret. He finds a station and he just listens. And this opens Shulam up. Soon he buys a car, he gets a computer, and blogs under the pseudonym Hasidic Rebel. Eventually, living in his community as a law-abiding skiver is no longer tenable. So Shulam is forced to leave. And when he goes, he leaves his family. He loses his community, and he even loses his faith. But one day, Shulam is hiking on the Sabbath, and he writes this. Stepping carefully across streams and climbing cliffs, up one mountain and down another, I would sing the songs I had sung so many years during Sabbath afternoon meals. This day is most esteemed of all days, a Sabbath day for God. When I keep the Sabbath, God will keep me. So Shulam, he sings these songs, even though he no longer really believes them. And as Shulam takes in the views on this hike, he settles down in a quiet place for lunch, and he reflects. It was a Sabbath afternoon, and I was desecrating it by hiking and eating trafe. I would reflect on the fact that such simple pleasures were so meaningful it felt exhilarating to be able to do what had for so many years been forbidden for fear of not heavenly, but human judgment. And Shulam's memoir might seem like it goes from this place of vibrant community to exile, from family to isolation, from a kind of life to death. But when you hear Shulam tell his own story, in all honesty, the opposite is true. Yes, the decisions that he made are hard. The path that he chooses is nearly impossible. But then he comes to this clearing and he finally knows himself to be somehow more whole. And the truth is that I can't tell you what will guide you through change. It could be a book that you didn't even know you needed to read. It could be letting go of the rules that just don't sit right with you anymore. It could be a tiny object reminding you of love and dangling from a gold chain around your neck. 
the Christian word, the theological word for surprising places that guidance will show up in change is resurrection. Resurrection is the guidance that shows up where you least expect it. Resurrection is the new way forward when there seemed to be no new way. Resurrection is the insistence that life lives on. Even after everything that you've lost, you live on. So maybe the rules of your relationships, they aren't working for you anymore. Maybe the interpretation of how to live out your faith is just not working for you anymore. Maybe the way that used to be is not working for you anymore. Change it. The good news is that there are new ways, new interpretations, new rules to live by, and they are everywhere in holy objects, in holy actions, in the holy law written in your own heart. Guidance will find you and it will free you. God's liberating words are coming for you. In fact, they're already here. Let's pray together. Our loving God, what does it look like for us to live as Jean Vanier wrote, to welcome change as the essence of life? There are times when our road of change is marked by loneliness and insecurity. Jesus, will you keep us from fear? Will you keep us from division? Will you keep us from limitation? Spirit of the living God, present with us now, enter the places of change in our lives, and will you use all of the change to heal us of what harms us? Amen.